0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I am excited to have on the show today a prolific actor and dear friend. He has appeared in such films as the cult hit Short Bus. He was on three seasons of Here TV's The Lair. He's been in Showgirls 2 and many, many other movies that have wowed and odd horror and cult fans. He's been a master vampire and on the cover of The Advocate magazine, Peter Stickles. Welcome to the show. Hey, happy new year, Michael. Oh, thank you, Peter. Happy t- 2018. I'm talking to you from the past. That's right. I, li- I think that like, it kind of messes with listeners' brains a bit to realize that we record a little bit in advance, but we always know what day it's going to air, so we're talking to you in 2018 from 2017. Mm-hmm. It's a little wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. I love that you said that I wooed and awed people. Yeah, I, I I'm thrilled. I feel pretty wooed and odd in your presence all the time, <laughs> I, and right back at you. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, why do- Michael Varadi is a tremendous friend
1: of mine. Right? We've been friends for how long now? A while. Yeah. We we have had adventures. There have been yeah. road trips, and as I was driving over, I'm like, you know, the one thing I should probably get down is who is Michael Varadi in in you know in my life. So I was actually kind of, re- I was re-
0: just remembering times as I was driving over oh. that we've had. Well, if you can figure out who I am, please let me know. I'm <laughs> i am still figuring it out. Uh, <laughs> well, why don't we kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. That's right. What is your draw to it? What is your connection to this world? Why do you think it appeals? It's however you choose to interpret, but why horror? The- The great why, quite well, speaking of existential
1: crises, crises, um, you know, I I guess um, from an an actor, an artist, why horror? I mean, you could, I think horror is actually one of the few sort of last punk rock activism uh, things you can do. Like, if you ask an, an athlete, like, why a marathon? Right you know the, watching a horror movie for me is it's one the only genre where it's you have the feeling of accomplishment after watching it like you know when we like when you and I and our little posse watch movies at the end of the day we sort of have this battle cry where we say we did it right Right. Well, we also say that when we walk out of a grocery store. So it, I guess it's kind of used loosely. But that's true. But, but in like,
0: today's America, when I walk out of a grocery store and I've actually made it out, I feel very accomplished. But I'm you know? saying, like you know, like I think
1: if you are literally surviving a horror movie where your life as, as if you put yourself in, in the shoes of the of, of you know, it was watching the movie, you know, which you should be doing, and you can successfully survive, there is that feeling of great accomplishment, right? You know, why a marathon? You could ask a thrill seeker, like you know, why uh, skydiving? You know, I, mean, I don't understand. That's crazy. Why would you even bu- like it's the same thing if you kind of uh, if you approach horror as a feeling of accomplishment. So for me, if you, you know, I sort of puff up my chest and I get ready and if I can survive, literally, mm-hmm. there's, not, there's, there's no better feeling. So that's what attracts me to it is my form of activism that it's my it's my punk rock. Right. If that makes sense.
0: No, I get it. I think that uh, one of the themes that we often discuss on the show is how horror has a draw to that sense of otherness, mm. and uh, how it speaks to outsiders. And so I can see that punk rock connection, uh, and I like the idea that you you view it as sort of a endurance test in a good way as mm-hmm. as a viewer. Uh, so let's talk about your active interest as a fan, though. Do you remember when you were growing up or like when the first moment that you felt really like a- attracted to this genre was?
1: Yeah, I was really scared of horror movies as a kid. I didn't really like watching them. I couldn't. I remember going to a Halloween party in sixth grade, and they showed Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and it, it destroyed me. I was absolutely traumatized, terrified. I remember I had gone to the party dressed as a vampire— Oh, funny enough, Lair. And my, my hair was slick. My mom had put like Vaseline in my hair to slick it back. And I just remember that Vaseline being in my hair for weeks afterwards because I was too scared to take a shower. I was too scared to, for those moments where I'd have to close my eyes and shampoo my hair because closing my eyes meant that Freddie was there. And I was, I mean, that's how traumatized I was. I couldn't sleep. I would have dreams of fighting him where I would, like, punch him and my hand would just, like, like just sink into his face. Oh. So that 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 um, idea of just his rotting flesh as my face kind of burst through it stayed with me for a long time. I was really scared. And Michael Carbonaro, my husband, Michael goes, he used to have a picture of Freddy Krueger hanging over his bed as like his hero. And I was the exact opposite. I was scared. I right. couldn't watch him. So, that and that went th- through until, you know, maybe when I was a teenager until I kind of got my wits about me and I was able to sort of enjoy it for what it was.
0: And when did you decide that you wanted to be an actor when I was a little kid
1: I grew up in a small town in upstate New York and I knew that I was going to get out and go to New York because that was I guess the closest major city right and I just knew I
0: wanted to be in the movies because I was fascinated by them
1: and I still am Mm.
0: so did you when you left upstate New York Did you immediately head towards like an acting program, a film school? What was your trajectory?
1: I went to college and I majored in video, uh, in video production. And I, 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 but I knew I still kind of just want to be behind, in front of the camera. So what I would do is I would cast all of our student films and sort of cast myself in them. Right. And that's what I was really, that was my focus. And
0: so right after college, I moved to New York and started printing up those headshots. (laughs) And was the first produ- professional production you got involved in actually Short Bus? No, it was Cemetery Gates. That's right. So Cemetery Gates, uh, mm-hmm. you, it's, you're a military guy versus, or you're, you're, no. No, I'm
1: just a regular Joe. I'm just a regular guy right. versus the, uh, a, a giant mutated Tasmanian devil.
0: That's right. What's the one where you're the military guy and there's like a green monster? Oh, that's Lizard Man. Oh, that's right. Okay. I have like those like images <laughs> of you like battling creatures in my head crossover. Well, I, I, when I think
1: back to like my first real job uh, in horror, mm-hmm. it was Cemetery Gates and that was 2004.
0: Talk to me a little bit about getting that part because as a, a kid who grew up first afraid of horror movies and then entranced by them, what was it like to suddenly be cast in one? Oh my
1: feet didn't hit the ground for weeks. I was I became friends with Tony Timpone. Shout out Fangoria, and I because I would I would go to conventions. Right. All over the place. Jersey and Philly and New York and some in Connecticut and I um, became friends with Tony Timpone. And Tony kinda like, you know, acted sort of as my agent. You know, because he knew that I wanted to start working in horror, and he, he hooked me up with the audition for Cemetery Gates, which was in L.A., and I'd never been to L.A. before, and I flew myself out, auditioned for it. In fact, actually, I auditioned for Boo. Do you remember Boo, the movie Boo? I do not. Um, the guy, um, oh, jeez, who, who directed Sharknado.
0: Oh, uh, Anthony Ferrante. Ferrante. Yeah, yeah,
1: he. I'm sorry. Yeah, because Anthony Ferrante directed Boo and Cemetery Gates were sister mil- movies shot at the same time. So I auditioned for Boo, directed by Anthony Ferrante, and um, and I didn't get Boo, but they put me in Cemetery Gates instead.
0: I like that you auditioned for a movie called Boo, only to later be in a movie called Shh. So apparently, you have to be in in sound movies. <laughs> I did a movie called Shh, which. Did you see it? Yeah, I came to the premiere. Okay, that's right. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not bad. It's going to come out soon, I think. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's literally a movie about a killer who kills people who behave inappropriately in the movie theater. So if you're texting, he'll kill you. So you're kind of like rooting for the killer. Right. Which is kind of cool, right? Yeah. And you are you play a police a officer who also wants to be an actor. He's he's actually yeah, he um he is like a B movie
1: actor struggling but also like a cop on the side like instead of like a waiter job and he's like a cop <laughs> right it's because, a side job which i feel like only in la would that be I, actually practical i'd almost believe it yeah remember that movie um with harrison ford and josh hartnett where they're like cop buddies Hollywoodland? yeah oh no, no Hollywoodland's, uh, hollywood lands hollywood Thomas yes yes yeah, yeah josh hartnett was like a struggling actor right and he was like harrison ford's like
0: buddy partner Wow. There were some some movies that were made. There were some movies made. I like to think about you know, that era of the nineties where it just seemed like there was like a bunch of like kind of pseudo buddy cop slash action thrillers that like no one ever talks about anymore. No. Harrison Ford was in a lot of them. Like The Devil Zone with Brad Pitt, where Oh yeah. Yeah. Or Clear and Present Danger. Or Theodore Rex with Whoopi Goldberg. That's right. The ultimate buddy cop comedy buddy cop, yeah. where it's Whoopi and a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Do you remember Radioland Murders? Okay, I love Radio I Land love Murders. I love that <laughs> movie. The, speaking of
1: bizarre movies that kind of came and went back, and, and like a cure for well, not a cure for wellness, but The Road to Wellness. Right.
0: I like Radio Land Murders, and I'm a big fan of uh, stories set on the radio. Mm-hmm. I've always been fond of, for some reason, movies about audio. I don't know. It's just a thing. Like Psycho 4, where CCH Pounder is hosting mm. uh, the the mm-hmm. Colin talk show or Pontypool. Uh, I love that. I've always mm-hmm. been fascinated by it. And Radio Land Murders, for people who don't know, was a script, I believe, by George Lucas. Yes. And um, it's an outrageous sort of murder mystery that takes place at a 1930s radio studio while they're doing a live broadcast. It makes very little sense. Oh, no, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Kind of mess. If you didn't, like, the people who were surprised by The Phantom Menace did not actually kind of keep up with all yeah. the other writing that he was up to. No disrespect, because uh, I obviously love that movie, but... You better, because that's
1: Jedi Weekend right now. Again, speaking to you from the past. That's right.
0: Uh, so you get Cemetery Gates, and at what mm-hmm. point did you um, begin the long process that became Short Bus? Uh, well, actually, fun, well,
1: funny thing is, I actually, I cast in Short Bus before I before Cemetery Gates. All right, so tell me about that. So, all right, so um, it was um, 2002, and uh, John was put an ad out in timeout New York saying right. that he was looking for, uh, people, not necessarily actors, people to be involved in this thing that he called just the sex film project. And there was a website that you'd go to. And the website was just a bit of text that said, you know, I want to do this movie and I want to use short, um, uh, real sex as the language of the film. So you have to be comfortable using real se- being, you know, being sexual and having sex on camera. So submit a video of yourself describing a, a, a meaningful sexual experience in your life. Uh, and so I rented a camera, and I just propped it in front of me. And I, I actually just, I just sat in front of the camera and just started talking about meaningful expe- sexual experiences in my life, which at that point was, um, was going to sex clubs where I was not necessarily participating but just sort of like watching mm-hmm. from afar just because I really liked the idea of watching right. sex happening in front of me. Uh, which I, it's not like I was doing it all the time. But it was something kind of that was just, just part of my life at the time. So I talked about that. Just, just, just like that, just kind of talked about it. I submitted the tape and I got called in with about 200 other people. Not wow. I'm sorry, not called in, I was selected with about 200 other people and and John sort of whittled it down to about 60 which he invited all 60 to New York to um I, and the first thing he did was he rented out a theater and we watched all of our tapes. So maybe it wasn't 60 cuz that seems like a lot. So it probably was more like 20 or 25. And um we watched all of our tapes. And I remember thinking, like, oh my God, I feel like such a dick because mine was so like bare bones when people were like making short films. Oh God. As their audition. And so, I mean, they were wonderful short films. My God, they were so cool. And they were, inv- a lot of them involved sex. A lot of them didn't. They were really powerful and meaningful. And then it was just me sort of like, duh, 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 you know, my name's Peter. And I felt really embarrassed watching that stupid video on the screen, which I never thought would ever be shown on a screen. Anyway, so after that process, he narrowed it down to about 12 of us, which he, um, it was it was kind of such a bizarre process and he would he wanted to really get a feel for how we all interacted with each other so he'd set us up on dates um the 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 12 people that he selected he, he kind of had us live in new york i lived in new york so i didn't have to be flown in but he would just kind of set these people up in new york and we'd go on dates with each other which was just going out like out to dinner or like right. going to a bar and he wanted to really assess the, the um compatibility and he had this giant like tree chart. I remember going to his apartment and he had just this chart on the left floor with this huge piece of paper where you have all of our names, like this tree with the connections, like who was compatible with who and who wasn't compatible. And he had like, and I just remember thinking, what the hell are you doing? This this looks insane. So uh, ultimately he cast about, um, tw- about 10 of us, nine or 10 of us. And that was in 2002. We didn't shoot the movie until 2004. Um... And it came, I'm sorry, 2005 maybe, and that came out in 2006. Um, And during that time, we would, again, I was living in New York, so I didn't have to, like, come in. But we we would have these workshops in New York and develop the script. Because there was no script. There was nothing. He just cast us first. Right. Uh, I was really one of the only actors, really actors, that uh, everyone else was just sort of just themselves. And we, we would live in this loft that he rented downtown. And we just lived there for months right. developing the script, and we'd have sleepovers and we'd watch tons of Robert Altman movies, and we would watch um, Woody Allen movies and Cassavetti's movies, and he would that was his inspiration that he wanted this movie to kind of feel look like and and we would just live in this loft and every once in a while we'd hear, "Oh, there's funding available. we're going to go ahead with the production and then that would disappear." <laughs> and then months later we'd hear like, "Oh, it's coming back again. We have funding, it's happening, then it disappear." And then finally, you know the p- poor producer. He would just—he was just so frustrated because he you knew he would just say to us, like everyone wants to see this movie, everyone wants to see this movie, but nobody wants to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to give up any money. Right. So it was very difficult and really stressful. Not again, not so much for me because I was living in New York, but a lot of people that just kept coming in and going out and coming in. So finally, in the summer of 2005, we actually shot it after at least at least 50 different versions of the script. I mean, I remember a guy would just deliver a script for me like every week or so, and i just stack these scripts up in the corner of my apartment, and it, was, and it just went through all these different um, versions, and eventually there was just seven of us that was cast. So I think the remaining two or three that unfortunately went through the whole process with us weren't in the final version, and that was really hard. Does that footage exist somewhere? Do you think or no? I'm sure. That's that's the the problem with. I think the the um, unfortunate thing with short Bus is the, the, the rights are just scattered everywhere. So they have a hard. From what I understand, um, getting something together like a Blu-ray or a special edition is is they've been something they they've been trying to do, but it's just really hard to find all the rights. So I get with all the extra footage. I mean, a lot of it made it to the DVD, right? Because my character, for instance, like had a much larger role in the original. Um, Film, but had to be cut down. So, and, but all that extra footage is
0: on the DVD. So, your character actually is a voyeur in the film. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that was uh, inspired by your original tape? Because John pulled from the things that you. Oh, for sure. That's exactly why he responded to me, and you know, and and that and
1: that sort of character and that idea, kind of. Th- that's what fu- kept you know went through all the different scripts and different um, incarnations, and but that that character. I I made from the beginning and John loved it. Me and John really had a great, I love the idea of just me representing the audience in right. a way and just kind of like watching from afar, like just, just like reaching out and maybe touching, but just not touching, you mm-hmm. know? And we just explored that for years, literally years.
0: So the John in question that we're talking about for listeners who may not be oh, familiar yeah. is uh, John Cameron Mitchell, who mm-hmm. is most famous for Hedvig and the angry inch. Were you aware of John uh, when you saw this call, or was this sort of your introduction to his world? Oh yeah, Hed- Hedwig had just come out maybe a couple
1: of years before, and I'd seen it and I loved it and I was a big fan. So of course, yeah. Uh, you know, nine eleven had just happened. Really, John was really affected. Of course, everyone was, but he that that was a big part of shortbus too. You know, and so he he right after that happened, it was like. 9/11 happened, and then that bizarre blackout happened, like the following summer.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. And They're like the rolling blackouts in yeah. Manhattan,
1: yeah. And that ended up in Short Bus too. That was a big part of Short Bus. So we were all very inspired by that. And but of course, I, I, I of course knew about John, and we became really close. In fact, uh, from Short Bus, he and I and Jay Brannan, yeah, and uh, Du DeBoy, of course. Like we're all uh, still very close.
0: No, I have to ask, though, of course, because you know the nature of indie film, where it is often an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. You stuck with this project for a long time. God, I mean, it, so was there a point where you just kind of felt like this is never going to happen? I didn't know any better, and I, I was so thrilled to be
1: involved. And again, I was living in New York, so it wasn't as like, hard for me just to, like, I was there. I, n- no, I've always had a really... You know, my drive has always been really strong. I've always been really passionate, and from the beginning, I was super passionate about the movie because it terrified me. Speaking of coming again back to why horror, because like that movie scared the hell out of me, right? And I, I couldn't breathe sometimes. I was so scared because I was. I mean, I, I was supposed to have real sex with one of the characters at the end of the movie. It was. It was ultimately cut at the very last second. By the way, like I was on set for my sex scene. When I was pulled aside in there and I John saying, you know, um, we're actually not going to shoot this graphic, so just carry on. And I'm thinking like, oh, my God. So this is after four years of getting ready to have like a real sex scene on camera and all of a sudden it just wasn't. I was right. I mean, believe me, I was relieved. Don't get me wrong. But I was also kind of like, no fair. Because um, I was terrified of this movie. Right but with with that terror comes tremendous passion passion like i probably have never felt on a project ever before it, but it was like it, i mean movies aren't made like that no especially not in this country they are in, you know in europe you know
0: like they'll they'll take 4 years to make a movie but i didn't know any better do you think there's an essential element of fear to taking on a role like do you do you look for that where something that you are maybe not comfortable with that you want to conquer and does that help make the movie uh, I think so. I, I get
1: I get really excited about things I'm scared about, you know. It's short boss, for one, the lair, right, for sure. Beca- you know, because I also really get excited about the fact that that I am stronger and um, more fearless than other actors, right? Who maybe just as passionate, but like, oh gosh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I would never show nudity. Oh, I would never have a same sex kiss. Oh, I would never, never. I'm like, I don't have any nevers,
0: <laughs> really. <laughs> But has your perspective on that changed? Like obviously having sex on camera in 2004 is different than 2017 cuz we all Would I do it again? You mean? Yeah. Um that's a really good question. I I don't think so. For
1: no other reason other than I just feel like I did that. Right. Um I, I don't know. I I I've I've asked to like to do like nudity and stuff and I've done it. Would I do it again?
0: Ah. I don't know. It would it's depend. The, it's the fairest answer, honestly. I don't know. So this movie takes a long... I probably would, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> let's, be, let's be honest. Yeah, let's go. Um, come on. Come on. Uh, this movie takes a long trajectory, uh, almost half a decade, that you're participating, and it finally comes out, and it does seize attention. It, you mm-hmm. know, I remember it getting a lot of press for the fact that there was unsimulated sex. This is the follow-up to Hedwig. This is... It played the major film festivals. You mm-hmm. kind of went on a little bit of a whirlwind after that. You were on, as I mentioned, the cover of The Advocate because of I this was. movie. Where did you see it? Did you see it in the theater? I did see it in the theater. Where? I saw Short Bus in a theater in uh, Cleveland. It was uh, the Cedarly Theater where I used to regularly go see the Rocky Horror Picture Show while I was in college. And I went with my roommate who did not want to sit in the seat right next to me because he felt like it was, it was like because there was sex and not it was real sex bro yeah he was like well i want to see it but like we can't like sit like right next to each other because like what if we bump elbows or something well like you know someone singing the national anthem into someone's asshole or but you know right but (laughs) well it's funny because it's not you know short bus is not a sexy
1: movie not really and and that's and that was exactly john's you know he wanted to use sex the only time the only way sex has been used in movies in this country has been Porn and porn has really only one thing; it, it's meant to arouse. Right, that's really it. But John wanted to be like, wait, wait a minute, sex is not always like arousing or good. Sex can be bad. Sex can be sad. Right. Sex can be, you know, bizarre and funny, or you know. Uh, so he wanted to capture those moments. So for people, people would describe Shortbus as being pornographic, mm-hmm. which I think is not. I don't know how you'd actually label it. I mean, again, another country. So When we went to Cannes, we all were invited to Cannes for the premiere of Short Bus, and they just embraced us with open arms because they've been showing movies like this forever. So they were able to sort of enjoy using real sex on film for something other than porn. So that was really interesting to me. That was exactly what got my attention from the original um, Short Bus blur, you know, before it was called Short Bus.
0: I like the idea of... Sex being used for different things Mm -hmm. on cinema. I I recently did a guest spot on another podcast where they asked me to come and talk about Showgirls, which I wanted to talk about that movie with Mm -hmm. you anyway. And I said to the host, you know, the thing about Showgirls is there's a lot of sex in the movie, but it isn't necessarily sexy. It's more an expose and uh, kind of a vulnerability and I think that you're right. I, I think of Short Bus as a movie that is all about sex, but it isn't necessarily sexy. It's more about the human condition, I think. Well, he and, and he wanted to get all the
1: real sex out of the way at the beginning, too, to like create a metaphor for this movie. That's why like you only see the, only, the, the sex only happens at the beginning, really, which is kind of why my sex scene got omitted, because I'm at my um scene with Paul at the very end. At that point in the movie, you wouldn't want to just see me banging away on this guy. Like, it's just, <laughs> because it, then, then it would become exploitative. And, you know, right. He, he wanted to have the movie start with a man ejaculating into his mouth and then bursting into tears to create a language, which is fascinating. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, I think that the world agreed. And I, well, did you like it when you saw it? Like, what
0: were your thoughts? I did. It's hard to say if you like it. Well, you know, I like it in the way that I like subversive work. I liked it in the way that I like the films of Bruce LeBruce. I like it in the way that um, I get that there is art beyond what they're giving us at the multiplex and art that asks questions, and we need that. I think that there are movies that you see that you don't necessarily like in the way that maybe you like Star Wars or Jaws or whatever, but you understand how important they are. And I think that short bus really was significant for that moment in cinematic history for America, because we're still really, really uptight with how we handle sex. And uh, the fact is, it's something that every living, breathing person Is connected to in some way. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we would have to, you know, consider this scandalous, there's really like when you think of the range of human experience, Short Bus should not be a scandalous movie Mm -hmm. because people have sex. And everyone wants to see it. Yeah. Like I would love
1: it if Jennifer Lawrence did like a very graphic sex scene movie, which by the way, I love Mother. Speaking of first movies that you kind of like watch and you're just affected by you don't necessarily like it i did not necessarily like mother right but i loved mother you know what i mean (laughs) uh but it'd be it would be interesting to see hollywood sort of embrace that more i don't know if if it'll happen
0: well and then so you make this movie and it had its moment where there was that press circus you went around to the festival's what was that moment like after all of these years, not knowing if it's going to happen, the idea that you were terrified by it, and um I also have to ask because it was a controversial film, were there challenges that you were met with going out for other roles after that? The ride after tropas was a blast that was just fun,
1: right up and down, we were celebrating, celebrating, celebrating the work was done. We were really proud of the movie. Everyone who was coming to see it enjoyed it. Like, I don't think anyone would come to see Short Bus and be upset by it. Like, you know what you're getting yourself into. So, going to Cannes, and we went to the Toronto Film Festival. We did all this. I went to um, the Bergen Film Festival in
0: um, the famous candace bergen film festival (laughs) in norway i went to norway (laughs) it
1: it was interesting because they kind of split us all up like all 10 of us or whatever and sent us different parts of the world you know to represent the movie it's like it was just a blast right the aftermath you know it's interesting i haven't really thought about it in a while um i don't know right if it really affected me um uh i'm sure it did right but i'd never felt it I, I could never pinpoint something and say, or no one ever came to me and said, "This is why you didn't do this," or "We are not considering you," or "We are we, we're gonna do, do not use you." I don't know. I don't think so. I remember. T- <laughs> I remember Tony Timpone told I I well this might be kind of a bizarre story, but I auditioned for Hostel. Oh, okay, back in the day, and I got a callback. I actually think I got two callbacks, and then I met with um, Eli Roth, and then. I didn't get it, and I was told – the explanation I was told was that um, they were going to go for more like a um, – ju- ju- the, the character was going to be very uh, Jewish-looking in, in appearance, so they wanted, like, the fanny pack. and They, went, they were going to make him, like, very um, right. look Jewish. And so he uh, – that was the reason I was told I was going to get it. But then I remember Tony Timpone coming to me and saying, like, oh, well, um, Eli Roth would never hire a gay actor. And the, I remember thinking he's probably not – he's probably telling the truth. That's probably true. I, 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 if not for a second, then I think that was wrong, and but I wasn't upset by it. So I don't know. Did something very similar happen about with Short Bus? I don't think so.
0: I don't know. Well, and you know, before you came on the show, we talked a little bit about the things that we might talk about today, and you had asked me, do you think that people are going to be interested in Short Bus since the drive of the show is more about horror, and you know the the show here is all about the cross-section of queer identity and horror and cult cinema. And that's why I think that this discussion is very important because I think that listeners, uh, understand there is this identity attached to all the work we do, Mm -hmm. whether it's in genre or not. And, you know, horror pushes boundaries. This movie pushes boundaries. And you bring up an interesting point, um, about, identity and uh and and being a gay actor working in Hollywood how do you feel that being an out gay man has uh affected your work and do you take that into account when you choose roles and do you also think that representation is important
1: I don't think it affects me in horror because again horror and um you know queer and movies are all like we're sisters you know right so i don't think creep creeperson ever thought for a second not to cast me because i was gay not for a second you know right um again even people like you know david dakota and charles band and they're not gonna not hire me right queer so i've never had a problem i don't think in this working in this genre um do i think it's important I, it feels good i feel i feel stronger i feel mm-hmm. more confident i feel a little more ballsy <laughs> again i feel like you know i puffed up my chest a little more. So, yeah. Plus, you know, after a while, like, it's... Listen, I mean, it's... I, I don't think it... It it shouldn't matter, but it does. So I kind of keep that in the back of my mind. Even though it shouldn't, I still should still sort of be kept aware of it. Right. You know, I think.
0: But then, one of your most celebrated and known roles is actually because of gay horror, and it's just a show called Lair. The Lair, mm-hmm. where it, uh, you played a master vampire for three seasons mm-hmm. uh, on here Network. Tell me a little bit about The Lair and uh, that ride, because yes. when The Lair came out, with the exception of Dante's Cove, of which the show was kind of spun off of, there really weren't gay shows of that mm-hmm. nature. So what was that process like? The Lair was a blast. I mean, I remember... I.
1: Jay Brannan, of all people, wrote to me, called me one day in New York. I was like, hey, did you ever get that email from L.A. where they were casting that, that vampire show? And I was like, huh? What, what are you talking about? And I didn't receive anything. He's like, well, they contacted me about being in it, and I told him I didn't want to do it, but I told him that you'd probably do it because you love horror. And I was like, I didn't get an email. He's like, well, that's funny. I gave him your email address, and it was an email address that I didn't really use very often. So I went back, and I found the email, and there it was, but it was also like three weeks old at that time. Right. So I called him immediately. I'm like, oh, my God, my name's Peter. I, you guys wrote to me three weeks ago and I, about this move. I'm sure I probably missed it. But, and they're like, oh, no, no. Um, I remember because they, they said, like, oh, no, no, we're still doing that. Do you want to do it? That was it? It was, it was just like that. <laughs> and I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's how things happen in L.A. Okay. <laughs> things are really quick. You just keep moving and you just say yes. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, okay, great. Um, we will fly you out tomorrow. Just You'll be out here for two, three weeks and we'll shoot the show and you're gonna play a detective investigating all these bizarre murders on this island full of vampires and I remember thinking like great (laughs) like okay see you later and then I remember later that night they called me like okay little change of plans you're not gonna play the detective anymore you're gonna play the vampire king where um so you're gonna play the ultimate bad guy and I was like great like do you have any questions I'm like yeah how much are you gonna get paid and they told me how much I was gonna get paid and then they're like the only thing is you'll have to show your, your your butt and there will be simulated sex scenes but nothing graphic and I was like Okay, no script, no nothing. So you called and they flew out the next day. If if it wasn't the next day, it was like the, the two days later. It was like that cuz I remember going to work and being like, "Guys, I got to leave for 2 weeks. Sorry, bye." <laughs> and I went. And I my the script was waiting for me in my hotel room in LA. Again, really hadn't been to LA except for shooting cemetery gates a, a few years before. So I was in downtown LA in this hotel. My script was on my bed when I got there, and it we shot the entire first season in I mean, less than a week. So if I stayed out there for two weeks, it was probably just like less than a week that we shot
0: the whole the whole series. And then in between seasons one and two, you moved to L.A., right? Uh, um, no, in between seasons two and three, I moved to L.A., yeah. So
1: I was commuting from from New York shooting seasons one and two. And the show became
0: very popular for, for a minute there. And what was that like, something that you'd get a phone call, all of a sudden you're on a plane the next day, and then... I just kept thinking like this is how they do it in LA. This is how they do it. Like I would talk to again I would go to Jay
1: Brand and I'm like, "Jay, I'm just going to do it." He's like, "Yeah, I told them no." You know, like like in, in New York, like when someone offers a role, we all sort of get together and we process it <laughs> and we talk about if it's right. And you know, like the pros and cons. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it just isn't isn't going to like talk, speak to me. In LA you just say yes. And ever Dylan Vox who was one of my co-stars on the show, like, he would be like, "Yeah, you just say yes. You just do it. You just do anything you offered." And so I am the whole time shooting the layers, thinking, like, well, that's just how it's done. We shoot, 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 shoot. And you don't look back, and you don't ask questions. And But shooting, especially shooting season one, like, that was a blast. We had such a good time. And you worked with Fred Olin Ray. Fred Olin Ray, who, who has been, like, my Tim Burton. You know, I'm his Johnny Depp to his Tim Burton. He keeps calling me and bringing me in for his projects, and I love that guy. I just did a movie for a lifetime with him called Stage Fright.
0: With Jordan Ladd. With Jordan Ladd. Rachel True. Yep. Yeah, I uh, Fred Owen Ray, for listeners who don't know, is a horror film director who rose to prominence in the 80s. Uh, he used to make all of these movies that would play on late night cable, and he would also do the alternative VHS cuts, which featured a lot more mm-hmm. boobs. Uh, and there were movies like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, and Evil Toons, mm-hmm. and Cyclone. And uh, Fred, despite being a very straight man, wrote and directed all three seasons of he did. Yes.
1: In fact, I think my first scene, uh, my first day of shooting was a sex scene with Dylan, and I was the first. Uh, our scene was the first gay scene Fred ever directed. Gay sex scene Fred right. ever directed. So Fred was was nice. It was kind of a nice feeling because he was just as nervous. I think. Right. And or he would um, he he would just sort of like Dylan and I would just sort of be cresting each other and being like you know it was all kind of uh it was all sort of PG thirteen rated but Fred would just kind of behind the camera be like okay Peter. Uh, Rub your hand now down Dylan's thigh and bring it back up. And Dylan, start, you know, like kissing Peter's neck. And I, but, but behind his voice, too, he's just kind of like... <laughs> and, you know, like, is, this, he's like, is this sexy i don't know someone telling but i think kim might have been there too kim ray his wife at the time i think it was she was kind of like maybe helping him along. like don't worry yeah this is sexy i know it's yeah uh i like to believe that kim was the gay whisperer i think she i think maybe she was but he but it was very bizarre and it was very technical like that too like i would just kind of be like rub up and then down and then back and then forth and then kiss and then turn and then kiss. <laughs> So it wasn't very like sexy shooting. Everyone people would ask me like, "Oh my god, how did you not get aroused?" Like, what? Like, believe me, it's like the most unsexy thing, you know?
0: And from what I know, Lair fans uh are very passionate about the show. For yeah. the 3 seasons it was on, the people who love the show like love the show. And do you have any unusual fan encounters or stories because of the Lair? unusual
1: <laughs> i actually just uh, encountered a couple of fans a few days ago and i signed a few copies of the layer um no no i mean everyone you know fans of the layer are always very respectful and very excited and really cool and you know um i've never had any like bizarre stories didn't someone make dolls of you guys? You're absolutely right. I guess that is a little bizarre. You know, I've had a <laughs> bizarre life myself. Sometimes I forget about those things. Um, yeah, someone made dolls out of me and um Brian Nolan, and maybe David Moretti. I don't remember, but I I remember receiving them in the mail of the ones from, of me and and Brian Nolan. They're adorable. I still have it. They're like little knitted dolls. But they're you know the, gosh, I feel bad because I don't remember exactly who they're from though. But they're from someone from another country. I think they're from like Austria. Like you know. And they had like the, the details down to like
0: my ring and my belt buckle and my, the color of my hair. Everything was perfect. Did you get to you, keep? You saw them, right? Yeah, I've seen yeah. them. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because I love the idea that there are these like really kind of cute things that someone like lovingly knitted mm-hmm. about characters from a show about a gay sex club for vampire witches. Is that
1: well, you know, <laughs> uh, she did it, and I, you know, I, I most a lot of my the fans of the are are female you know and that she I remember she was very excited and kind of you know like you know how like in Japan they they sort of turn like these cute sort of sexy things and almost like cartoony like cuddly little bundles that you can kind of sleep with you know right i think
0: i think the dolls that she made we all like big smiles on our faces and big wide eyes you know like you know you bring up something that i have uh, often thought about but really have never gotten a chance to talk to a guest about and it's this idea that though the show the lair is about gay men and arguably because it was for here, network was made for gay men. The core audience is female. And there's this phenomenon that happens in, on, especially in the internet space, uh, like Tumblr and places where we find there are a lot of, uh, fandoms that are being driven primarily by women who are very invested in both real and imaginary homosexual relationships. What do you think it is that draws women to the idea of these, these fictional men, getting it together. Uh, maybe I think something
1: about the way that men um, show affection to each other. Maybe they're not getting from their straight men, you know, <laughs> maybe they're, they, they, they're sort of more tender and, and loving in a way that they're maybe not seeing <laughs> in their personal lives, you know? And, they were like, oh, God, I really wish, you know, my boyfriend would kiss me like that. Like how those two guys are kissing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, the whole vampire lore is has always been something that women have been excited about. But then, you know, again, like, you know, again, I bring back Jay Brannan again, who um, is a queer singer-songwriter.
0: And a lot of his songs are about his relationship with men. And he has a huge female following. Huge. Right. I've got to Jay's shows songs. with you. And I sometimes think that we're the only guys in the yeah. room. Yeah,
1: Yeah. But you know women are a little bit more sexually fluid I think. You know, overall they can kind of they they get it a little bit more than. I mean, are there are there some I I think these are primarily straight women by the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the case like yeah. I, I think that there is a swath of uh slash fiction online that is written <laughs> primarily by straight women yeah. which uh frequently comes up like when I do panels at Comic-Con where the women will want to talk about uh the TV show Supernatural and how they are really driven by the idea of the two leads banging it out, which is interesting because they're also brothers, so it's not only gay, but it's like this incest thing. And I'm like, man, like ever since the internet, we realized that like straight ladies are kinky. They sure are. And I'm here for it. I love it. Live your fantasies for real. Uh, so you know, outside of Short Bus and The Lair, you have a very prolific career in the world of cult cinema. How many movies have you been in? Do you know? I w- I like to say
1: twenty-five, just because it's. A- I-, I think I counted once, and it was a nice round number. I think after I did The Trouble with Barry, it was um that was my 25th.
0: I was going to say cuz I feel like it's more than 25, but me, that's me. a nice number. It's a oh, nice like a, like a real like a role, like, that yeah. I had like an had actual role in. Yeah. Uh and you've worked with some uh very prolific and and well-known studios within the genre space like Full Moon Features mm-hmm. and you've done movies for Trauma. Yep. Uh, I do want to ask a little bit about your roles in the Full Moon movies because in one of the Ginger Dead Man movies mm-hmm. you played Jeffrey Dahmer. I sure did. Ginger Dead Man 3,
1: Saturday Night Cleaver. And it was a roller boogie. It was a roller disco bo- boogie movie directed by um, William Butler. Another that's good, right. Another good friend of mine.
0: William Butler, also uh, a horror alumni mm-hmm. who yep. has, I think, the only person to have been killed by Freddie, Jason, and Leatherface on yeah. the screen. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and Ghoulies.
0: Oh, that's right. He was not Ghoulies. I think he was killed, too, by that moment. I mean honestly if you're going to go the uh, ghoulies are the way to go. Yeah. Uh what was it like playing Jeffrey Dahmer? <laughs> it was exciting. I was
1: thrilled because <laughs> I've all you know I I I remember well all right so in the movie they decide to bring back a bunch of serial killers from the dead to kill the to battle the ginger dead the ginger dead man, excuse me. And they bring back Jeffrey Dahmer, Lizzie Borden, Charles Manson and Hitler uh to help kill the ginger dead man. And what the the funny thing was during the production I remember thinking like Charles Manson isn't dead, or wasn't at the time, <laughs> and <laughs> and I think I brought, I might have even brought up to one of the to the producer, and they're like, and I could just kind of see his eyes, sort of like, uh, it doesn't matter, keep rolling. <laughs> but it was a roll, so I was a roller skating Jeffrey Dahmer that had to um, battle the ginger dead man and ultimately help kill him.
0: Are you good at roller skating?
1: Uh. I think so. We we had tons of practice time because, you know, like when you're shooting, we have all this downtime. We shot on a real like a roller skating rink. So we had, we just like kind of skate around while they're setting up. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it, comes,
0: it comes back to you. And you're also in one of the evil bong movies. Yeah. Evil bong three, the wrath of bong. But what's interesting is you're also in one of the other evil bong movies, despite mm-hmm. the fact you never shot any footage for it. Tell me how that works. Well, they just use like archive footage from from
1: <laughs> the other Ginger Dead, uh Evil Bong movies. Emma Victoria Demar wrote to another great horror actress. Wrote to me, and she's because she went to the premiere. And she's like, "I loved you in Ginger Ginger um, Dead Man versus Evil Bong." I was like, "Excuse me, I'm not in that movie." She's like, "Yes, you are." And I wrote, I think I wrote to Charlie. I was like, you would, "Or I wrote to somebody," and my hey, mind, this movie, like, yeah. And they're like, "Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, we just use you from." Part three, we'll give you a credit, don't worry. And I was like, okay. I'm not going to ever never get mad at those guys. Like, there's, there's no problem in, in my book. I would I would work for them again in a second. But they always, it's funny, because my role in um, Evil Bonk 3 was uh, it was three different actors. The, you know, it's like, it was like the trio of guys, and the same ones were used for the other roles, but then they kept switching out the, like, nerdy
0: Alistair role. That's so interesting. Yeah. And hmm. so it was part three. Well, maybe after a certain point, it became like tradition maybe yeah maybe and then the then
1: the characters sort of disappeared from the rest of the franchise like now it's just the one there's a bunch of eel bong movies happening but just the one guy
0: now of all the films that you've been in are there any that you feel deserve more attention or do you have any personal favorites that like you know you don't get to talk about as much
1: i you know i loved doing my movies with creep creeperson and i especially loved um finger bang which i think should be coming out soon. Although I think that the movie title was changed, which is so unfortunate because F- "Fingerbang" is such a great title and it's about a, a super, a guy who realizes he's a superhero because he can pew, 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 shoot, you know, bullets out of his finger. Um, <laughs> As you do. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But they changed the title to another superhero movie. I don't know, which it's fine. I love that movie and I hope people get to see that movie. I saw it in Vegas. Um,
0: I don't know. I don't know. Well, one movie I have what? to ask about, because it sort of has its roots, not sort of, it does have its roots in a film that you and I both love, and I alluded to it earlier. You were in the sequel to Showgirls. I was in Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. And uh, that was another long labor of love that took a couple of years to make. So first off, you're a longtime Showgirls fan. Oh, Tell me yeah. a little bit about your your a passion for that movie and what it was like to be cast in the sequel directed and written by OG showgirl star Rena Riffle.
1: Yeah. Showgirls, I think is in my top three movies, favorite movies of all time. I think it's remarkable. I can that's what, that's a movie I can watch anytime. I can put it on anytime and watch it and find such, still find tremendous joy in it. Um, of all, of all the Verhoeven movies, which are, his movies are just exceptional. They hurt my feelings. They're so good. <laughs> um, but I think that's my favorite. And, you know, I became Rena uh, I'm sorry. I became friends with Rena. And she was a fan of Short Boss. So she told me how she... And I loved Trasharella, which was her um, movie before Showgirls. Did you ever see Trasharella? I do. I love that movie. So good. Yeah. She made it. She produced it. She directed it. She starred in it. Wrote it. Everything. So she said, hey, Peter, I'm going to make Showgirls 2 and I want you to be in it. And I was like, yeah, whatever you want. I'll do anything. Um, and I don't know, we're like, do we have to? Get, do we have to like get permission from MGM to do a showgirl sequel? And she said, um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, let's figure that out. She's like, okay, I'll, I'll send an email and I'll write and I'll ask. And I think she actually wrote to like Paul Verhoeven, and I think she actually wrote to MGM. And MGM wrote back some was saying something something like, um, well, we don't have any plans for showgirl sequel, which I think Arena sort of f- took that as permission <laughs> <laughs> so we did showgirls too, and uh it was uh, that was another movie that like i remember she when we finished it it was like it was really long it was like four and a half hours right and i watched it with her at her place in pismo beach once and i was like we got to cut this down she's like well you know the original showgirls is really long it's like two and a half hours i'm like yeah but this is not two and a half hours. It's like four hours, and we gotta cut it down. I mean, it's so hard for her, my God. But again, because she was a writer, creator, director, star, everything. So she had a hard time cutting that thing down.
0: What I think that would surprise people who only sort of know Rena from Showgirls or maybe her brief appearance in Mulholland Drive is that she is uh, a very um, surrealist filmmaker. And she has a real interest in experimental art. And uh, she made this movie called Astrid. Uh, silent film, right? Uh, there are large portions of it that are silent. But she shot it mostly herself mm-hmm. up in Pismo Beach, like during the off season. And it's outrageous. It's and wonderful. Great. And I think that Rena's one of these filmmakers who uh, honestly is going to be, you know, rediscovered over time as someone who's sort of a... A crazy abstract mm. genius and because she's just so like I love her work what are you working on these days or what's coming out like what where can we see you next well um axe man 2 just came out which was
1: very exciting that was a fun m- movie that I shot a couple of years ago and it's part of the whole X man trilogy that turned out really well that just came out in dvd
0: which interestingly enough uh our guest from last week maria olsen is also yeah. in X man 2 so this is a. Uh, Axe Man, month of January here on yeah. Dead for Filth. Is she also on um,
1: Orange is the New Black?
0: No, I don't think so. Okay,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and well, right
1: now I'm kind of on the road um, with Michael, my, my husband's um, live magic show. He, he does a magic TV show, and now we're on the road doing the, the live. The Carbonaro or,
0: Effect. The Carbonaro Effect. On True, TV. on True TV. We just got nominated for a Critics' Choice Award. Congratulations. Do you get to pick out a tuxedo and I th- go? I think so.
1: Yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna go to the to the ceremony, and uh, so he has that. He has a TV show, and he, we do a live tour of that show. And so I've kind of on the road helping out on that show. So I've been doing magic. I How
0: think. many cities? You're on the road a lot. You... It's been almost eighty cities now. It's well, we've been doing it for the last few years, right? Because so. I feel like every now and then I'll text you and be like, "Hey, let's have coffee," and you'll be like, "I'm, I'm in Milwaukee. I'm in Dubuque." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: Um... Yeah, no, it's 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 been a ride, and it's been a lot of fun. But it's kind of now slowing down, so I can maybe hopefully start focusing on doing something else because I'm kind of get, I got the itch. <laughs> My name's Peter Stickles, and I got the itch.
0: Uh, well, do
1: you remember that from A Dirty Shame? I do. They were all named Stickles. That's right. She was Sylvia Stickles. Her whole family's name was Stickles, and I was watching it, being like, huh. And it was funny because he was really close with John and around during the production of short bus. And I kind of think like, I wonder if he saw my name, like on a sheet somewhere. And he was like, I love that name.
0: Stickles is kind of a great <laughs> John Waters. kind of, yeah. Name. Yeah. Well, yeah. He used it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Uh, well, speaking of things that, that give you the itch, what have you seen and been watching lately that, uh, you've been enjoying? I loved mother and hated it, which is <laughs> why I loved it so much. Right. Uh,
1: a uh, big Game of Thrones guy. I love Game of Thrones. Um, what have I seen? I just actually watched their day. Um, a girl walks home alone the, at night. Yeah, and, and then the follow up with um, the Bad Batch.
0: How was Bad Batch? I haven't great. seen it
1: yet. Really great, bizarre. Did you see it? Really fun. It was really fun. It was really good. Sorry, broke, I know broke the fourth wall. We broke um, the fourth
0: wall. Sometimes, sometimes we sp- there are producers in the room that rarely get mentioned. Oh god.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh oh, I'm also reading Clive Barker's latest. Um, uh um novel. Which the, one's that? The Scarlet Gospels.
0: Oh yeah. That's the um, one that brings Pinhead and he, the uh Harry Moore yeah, character together. It is it's rough to it's it is just
1: nauseating. Like I forget how hardcore he is. I think it's his latest novel, right? I mean it was a couple years ago, but I'm just sort of reading right. it right now. No, and rough Man, by nauseating, you mean like he's just so intense in the yes, material. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's just a bad dream times ten. I mean, it's he knows how he knows it. He's the real deal. And it's funny because at the beginning you hear like all these act you know, accolades from Stephen King and Quentin Tarantino at the beginning. Like, this is the guy. So um, that's been kind of,
0: that's been under my, uh, in my hand lately. and Under as, my belt. <laughs> as we get ready to head off into the night, I have to ask, since, you know, it kind of brings us full circle to uh, the beginning of the conversation. You talk about this, this rough piece of art.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How important is it to you still to find material that just pushes that envelope? It's, I mean, look, it's my, it's my gut,
1: you know, it's, it's my gut, it's deep down in my bones, and I've realized, I, I think the next step for me is I gotta start, you know, doing something my, my own, my own, I'm really creating something my own, because, you know, like, doing something like Utero, which, yeah. Tell, With, tell us about Utero. Okay, so Utero was, um, starring Jessica Cameron, directed by Brian Coyne, you know, that came up, he, Brian Coyne was actually a big fan of Cemetery Gates, and contacted me, he was like, I want you to be the guy in this movie, and it was really dark and very bizarre, and me and Jessica... My character and Jessica's character have a baby and it, it it becomes like this weird creature, like spider baby, almost like it's alive. And it was really dark and really creepy and really scary and really unsettling. And just for me, it was like, yes, like I could, I could feel it in my bones, you know. Mm-hmm. So and I'm hoping that will come out sometime because it, we made it a few years ago. Um, but, yeah, of course, it's, it's 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 totally I mean,
0: it's really important to me. Is that punk rock spirit something that you always seek out? Uh, yeah. Again, I think it's it's that you know I, I don't
1: know about you, but I like I, I keep bring you know when you how did we come up with the, with the existential crisis at the beginning? Well, why horror? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, right? It's yeah. like why? Why not? You know? Right? Why? Why the marathon runner? You know? Right? Um, because
0: you can't see it any, any other way. I guess. It's fair enough, Peter Stickles. It is the beginning of twenty eighteen. As we head into a new year, do you have any advice for listeners to tackle what lies ahead? Geez, any advice? I say,
1: again, you know, hey, when it comes to White Horror, do what scares you. Right? That's the only time, that I mean, do what scares you.
0: I think, as far as mission statements go, <laughs> that's a strong and simple one, and one uh, that I appreciate. Where can people find you? Uh, well, there's this thing called the internet. <laughs> um, I don't know if
1: you've heard of email. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Cool. Uh, Peter Stickles, uh, dot Weebly.com. I still use my Weebly account. Do you really? Yeah. You're the one. And I still have my AOL account. John, because John Cameron Mitchell, he also has his AOL account and we always make people say, you know, teases for having AOL account. And he says to me, he's like, Peter, it's just you, me and Nicole Kidman.
0: There you We're go. We're the last people with our AOL accounts. Nicole, you've got mail. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course, it was a blast. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Saghetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.